You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Carter McCoy, one to ten years sentence for armed robbery. First offense in the state of Texas. Wanted by the state of Ohio for assault with a deadly weapon and armed robbery. I think he got to you. At least I got to him. get the picture, do you? And I've always heard what a smart-ass operator you was. That's a walk-in bank, man. A piece of cake. You don't have to be Dillinger for that one. What did I tell you? Isn't that game? It's all a game. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Maitland McDonough. It is always a pleasure for me to be here. Also with us this week is Mr. A. A. Ron Carruthers. It's Aaron. You are insubordinate and churlish. This week we are discussing the 1972 film from director Sam Peckinpah, The Getaway. Based on the novel by Jim Thompson and adapted by Walter Hill, the film stars Steve McQueen as Doc McCoy and Alan McGraw as his wife, Carol. Two young lovers with nothing better to do than rob a bank with the duplicitous Rudy Butler and the barely a character Jack Dodson. Let's just say that things don't go as well as they should. Now, we're going to be getting into spoilers galore about this movie and the 1994 remake and the Jim Thompson book along the way. So please be warned. Now, Maitland, when was the first time you saw Peckinpah's The Getaway, and what did you think? I'm pretty sure that I first saw The Getaway in the 80s. I did not see it when it was originally released. Uh, That was just a little bit early for me. But I saw it, I believe, at a film school showing at Columbia University, though I was not yet at Columbia. I, I had friends who were older than I was who were there. And it was projected under not ideal conditions, but certainly better than any other that were available to me at that time. And it was a film that I found pretty breathtaking in its cynicism and yet its unpeckinpah likeness in many ways. I mean, I, already my idea of peckinpah was the guy who did those incredible bloodbaths. 
And the getaway really is not a bloodbath, literally, although it is certainly an emotional bloodbath on every level. So it was a little bit of a surprise to me. How about you, Aaron? I saw it um, in 2005 when they released the DVD version because I'm relatively young and um, I was just getting to the pecking part at the time because I was at university. I went on a kind of spree to do a pecking part, straw dogs, you name it. And then I saw, oh, there's the getaway. And I always love Steve McQueen because Britain will always show The Great Escape every Christmas time. So we, we knew McQueen, I, mean, I knew him from Bullet, Papillon. So the thought of Peck and Pa and McQueen together was like, this is like, oh, it's amazing. I actually saw this movie for this podcast. I had heard about it for a long time for whatever reason. I guess it was because my family, we were big fans of All in the Family and would watch the originals when those were on, the reruns for all those years after. And my mom would always tell me about young Sally Struthers being in this movie and just how different she was than Gloria um, Stivitz in All in the Family and just what a, a sex babam she was in this movie. And so I just always had that tucked away in the back of my head of like, oh, I should check that movie out sometime. I can't say that I'm a, a huge Steve McQueen fan. Like I've seen Bullet and I've seen The Great Escape. But it's like I haven't gone out of my way to see other movies that he's been in. So let's definitely talk about him as a star. Because at this point, when he was in this movie, he was a huge star. And I imagine people know that Steve McQueen was a star and what a big star he was. But just maybe not the magnitude of what a powerhouse he was at this time. But yeah, this was uh, a first-time viewing for me. I was somewhat familiar with the 94 film, though that was also a first-time view for me. And I kind of came into this one through really wanting to reacquaint myself or acquaint myself with the books of Jim Thompson and saying, hey, here's this movie that was made out of this Jim Thompson book. Now I have an excuse. Let's read the Jim Thompson and move into the movie that way. Okay, Mike, I'm the person who's still reeling from the fact that you discovered the getaway for Sally Struthers. That's pretty fantastic. <laughs> well, you have to admit, she is pretty spectacular in this movie. She's very oh, she weird. Is, no question. I was so happy to see Ala Terry in this movie as well as, as Rudy, because I had only really known him as being Salazzo the Turk in The Godfather. And when he showed up on screen, I, I didn't know who this guy was. At first, I thought he was Topol. He has this totally different look with the big mustache and the hair all sticking out. Like he looked like, like Dr. Hans Zarkov or something. I was just like, who is this guy? And then when he starts to talk, I was like, okay, it's not Topol. Who is this? And then I had to look him up and I was like, really? That's the Turk? He looks so different. And the Godfather, which was the same year that this came out was when the Godfather came out. That's pretty remarkable. It's a pretty good run runner films. Um, did he know right after this, he wrote the film Villain with Richard Burton? He did, yeah. And I didn't know that he was also a screenwriter. It says in the Queen book that I've got by Marshall Terrell that he was a writer first and then he became an actor before and then The Godfather and then The Getaway and then he died. He was a heavy drinker as well from what I was reading and discovering about him. And uh, yeah, he just seems like an interesting character. And uh his role in the getaway is just something you'd never get away with it these days when it comes to films. He is one of the more interesting aspects of the film. And the more I watch the getaway, 
the more I appreciate kind of the parallel stories that are happening between Rudy and the Sally Struthers character, Fran, and then Doc and Carol. But we can definitely get into that. Let's set it up a little bit as far as how we're introduced to the story. And a lot of the beginning of this movie takes place in a prison. And this has to be one of the most oppressive prison sequences that I've seen in a long time. And we've all seen our fair share of prison movies. But the way that they present this kind of regimented life and the use of the audio, that machine sound that runs through so much of this opening, it just, it kind of drove me nuts. I couldn't believe just that noise, just droning and droning. It felt like, and I don't think this sequence goes on for too long, but it felt like this sequence goes on forever just because of that oppressive nature. I found myself thinking of Metropolis looking at the the prison sequences, because it's the same kind of mechanization of human beings. Those prisoners, of course, are all dressed alike, which is a factor of being in prison. But they're also moving in these incredibly regimented groups to the sound of that machine thumping and clanging in the background. The dehumanization of that prison And yet the way that Doc is rebelling against it in his own tiny way, sitting in his room, building that incredibly intricate model bridge, I think is a really extraordinarily good and efficient way of introducing that character, both where he's been and why he is not the sum total of what's been done to him in prison. Like you say, it's the sound, it was one of the parts I found fascinating. Somebody kind of studied like non-diegetic and diegetic sounds, it was very oppressive, and uh, the way it was cut to, you remember the opening shot, it's like a shot of a deer, and that was actually based on, I said, this prison, is it Huntsville that they filmed it at? Wild animals were running free about the area while these men were caged up like like savages in this time, and they're like basically down to the kind of caveman days where they're like cutting down in the wood and all this, where they're being told what to do, and it's a really good opening sequence. Uh, and the fact is, too, you have Ben Johnson there kind of looming over the proceedings. And he's looking over towards um, McQueen. And, uh, yeah, it's very, very scary. I also wonder if that bridge that McQueen is making out of, what, toothpicks or matchsticks or something, if that is some sort of a reference to the Wild Bunch with the destruction of the bridge and that. But I could be reading way too much into that. Could be a subtle joke. I would say possibly, but also I think that you could read it metaphorically as the idea that he, though he is in prison, though he's being forced into a, a kind of conformity with all of these other guys in the prison, he is still looking forward to something outside, to the idea that there is a way out for him. And I think that bridge could be read to symbolize that. Because Doc, no matter how much he's forced into other people's rhythms, other people's way of behaving, is still Doc McCoy and has this deeply rooted sense of self and also this belief that he's not there forever, that there's a way out for him, a way out that he's engineered. And that way that he finally ends up being sprung is through Carol, his wife. And even though he puts this plan into place, it feels like he's in denial. Like he says, okay, I need you to talk to Banyan, this character that is played by Ben Johnson, who is there kind of looming over things, part of the proceedings for uh, parole, all this kind of stuff, and says, okay, I need you to talk to this guy. And by talk to, 
I think he knows that he needs Carol to use her feminine wiles on the Banyan character, though he doesn't seem to want to admit it. And that becomes the crux of this movie, is this idea of what Carol had to do to get Doc out of prison. And that is even more of a looming thing than the robbery that takes place after this, the titular getaway from the robbery, because that taints everything. That whole idea of, can he trust this woman or can't he, he put her into this horrible situation, that becomes the real meat of this story played against this robbery and getaway afterwards. And I think that's a really interesting thing because that plays, I mean, just as you were saying, Maitland, as far as this isn't a typical blood and guts Western that we've seen from Peck and Paw, that the idea of faithfulness and just the way that people uh, don't trust one another, the man-woman relationship thing, that is at the core of so many of these movies. We talked in the past about things like uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, the rape that happens in that, the, the distrust, all those things that happen in that movie. That's pure peck and paw, even more than the slow-motion gun battles. And we get some of those in here, we get a lot of, uh, of gun battles happening, but that idea of the man who pushes the woman into this horrible situation and then his response to it is really, that's 100% peck and paw there. He does play with these films all the time. I'm sure he had that also in uh, Straw Dogs as well. He was talking about how the, after the woman's been violated, um, you get that sense where Hoffman has to become a man's man and much like Queen, he has to do his thing when it comes to his woman, because she's been tainted. Although, this tension between Doc and Carol, because Doc knows she had to sleep with Benyon. She knows that he knows that she had to sleep with Benyon, and yet neither of them is talking about it, is, in fact, far more prevalent in the novel. In the novel, they start talking about that really early on, and they are still talking about it as they approach the end of their journey. Uh, one of the things that I really like about that novel is that it is so forthright about this issue of loyalty, which Doc clearly wants from Carol, and the loyalty that she gives him, which includes the fact that she's willing to sleep with another man in order to get him out of jail, and the tension between the fact that he feels that he's been betrayed, even though she did what he asked her to, even if he didn't literally say, and by the way, you're going to have to sleep with Banyan to get me out. And the betrayal that she feels because she didn't want to sleep with him. She slept with him in order to get Doc out of prison. And so the fundamental tension, I think, in the novel really is that both of them know what she did. Both of them know that she did did it because he wanted it. And yet they can't reconcile that because he is still angry at her. He still seems to feel as though there must have been some other way she could have do it, done it, even though that's what he asked her to do. And she in turn resents him for the fact that she did exactly what he asked her to do. And now he seems to be mad at her for it. What is going on after he gets sprung is, okay, Doc, I know you are a, a consummate criminal bank robber. I need you now to rob this bank for me. And we're going to set this whole score up. And it's 
kind of, and I'm trying to remember if they do this in the movie, but it's kind of a cover up because this bank has already been robbed of some money and then they're using the robbery that Doc sets up to cover that up. Like they get away with $500,000 or $400,000, but they report that $750,000 has been stolen from this bank. So what happened to that extra money? Banyan already had it and took it out, but now they're using this robbery as a cover-up. So it's it's a little almost like a Charlie Verrick kind of a thing as far as, you know, what, where was that money? How did that extra money get out, et cetera, et cetera. And it kind of reminded me of Charlie Verrick as well insofar as Banyan, he, uh, his criminal crew are all of these guys in suits in the way that they are this organization. And there's this character that, He's credited in in uh, the credits as the accountant, and I think he's actually supposed to be Banyan's brother, and he's played by this guy, John Bryson, who in real life was more of a photographer than he was an actor, and my God, this guy... He, he just has such a great look to him. Like at first I thought he was slim pickings all like made up or something, but it's not. It's, it's this guy, John Bryson, and he has like these big teeth, these thick glasses, the just everything about him just looks so funny, but he plays it a hundred percent serious and he becomes this force of evil. Like once Banyan is taken out and we'll get there, once Banyan is taken out, this guy ends up becoming like the head of all this stuff and he has no compassion when banyan is discovered dead there's like okay yeah throw him down a dry well and then when i hear that this guy's supposed to be banyan's brother it's like really he had no compassion for his brother there was nothing there and the funny thing is with that scene uh, where you first see that gentleman uh, ben johnson and mcqueen did you ever notice that on the boat slash uh, restaurant table that the henchmen are behind him, uh, padding along in the wee kind of dinghy type thing. It was it was strange, but I just felt it was kind of peck and pack kind of thing because he does kind of weird things with style and stuff. And it, it actually reminded me of the character Deputy Dog, that he's Banyan's brother, in a way. He was kind of funny looking, kind of weird, kind of, like you say, psychotic as well. Yeah, they kind of remind me of the bad guys from uh, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, where they're just like kind of comical, but not at the same time. Like, you don't want to mess with these guys. And I think you can say that of most of the characters in, in The Getaway. You know, a lot of them are kind of funny and quirky, and you could imagine an entirely different kind of director making this into a kind of madcap caper where everybody's eccentric and everybody's got some quirky little... Thing that they want out of this and all of their quirky little things are at odds with other people's quirky little things. And it could be a light, funny kind of film, and yet it is the farthest thing from it, although I have to say it is not as far from it as Thompson's novel is. And Thompson's novel is, is it's a smash your head against the pavement a few times and then pour alcohol on it because that's how bad it is. Uh, the original director was meant to be Peter Bogdanovich. Would he have had the quirk, the kind of ability to add quirks to the characters? Or I'm just trying to think how he how he would read the material. Uh, in a way, I have no idea. But imagine that. Imagine a Peter Bogdanovich version of the getaway. Be interesting. Yeah, I imagine it would have ended up a little bit more like "What's Up, Doc." But originally, it was supposed to be he was going to um, shoot "What's Up, Doc," then leave it, and then go and make the getaway. And then come back and edit What's Up, Doc, and then edit uh, The Getaway. But um, 
Warner Brothers like says, no, we're not having that. So uh, that was changed, and then obviously they went for Peckinpah. And I think we can thank God for that, because much though I admire Peter Bogdanovich, and he's made many movies that I like, The Getaway is not a movie that I can see Peter Bogdanovich doing anything interesting with. I think that the, the core of that movie is so white-hot and bitterly cold at the same time that I, I can't imagine him really making a movie from this material that would have in any way been true to the material. Once McQueen got onto this, he was calling the shots again, was this powerful figure at the time. And correct me if I'm wrong, Aaron, but I think that he was the one who said, no, let's get Peckinpah on this because they had just done Junior Bonner together. Oh, yeah, that's right. The thing was, Junior Bonner was a flop. And um, the thing was, McQueen had a lot of flops in his path and so did uh, Peckinpah. So these two, these are two guys looking for a hit. And the getaway was Peckinpah's biggest hit in terms of money for him and box office. And also, Ally McGraw was coming off of Love Story right around this time. And that was, I just rewatched um, The Kid Stays in the Picture and just hearing about what a savior Love Story was for Paramount. And it was, again, like these two white hot stars, McGraw and McQueen, being put into this one film was, oh my God, look out for this. And that's absolutely true. I mean, that was a powerhouse combination at the time that this movie was made. And yet, one of the things that surprised me when I rewatched it yesterday, and then I watched most of it again this morning, was that I was surprised by how soft it was for a Peckinpah film, given how unbelievably harsh the source material is. And I'm sure we're going to talk about this more later, but The, the Getaway is a, an even rougher, more pitiless, more unromantic story in the Jim Thompson version than it is in the Peckinpah version. And nobody ever thinks of Peckinpah as an old softy, but he absolutely softened up this story in a really serious way. And one of the first ways that you see it is that in the novel, the betrayal, betrayal not even being the appropriate word, Carol sleeping with Banyan is something they talk about for the entire book. They talk about it from the minute the two of them get together until the whole thing comes to a close. And it's a bitter, bitter thing between them in the book. It's not something that either of them can ignore. And in particular, it's not something that Doc can let go of. The book sets up this stuff a lot differently because we're not, we're not going to do flashbacks within the first few minutes of a, a typical movie. We're going to set this up very linearly. And that's what they end up doing. Though, Peckinpah does some interesting stuff here. There's that sequence of Doc and Carol swimming together, which seems to be a, a fantasy sequence. And then there are those cuts to his memories of Carol when he's in prison. So it's almost like flashbacks inside of the, the prison scene, but not uh, the same way that Thompson would, would lay out his story and do uh, the way that he opens up the film I, I, or his book. I love the way that he opens up with Doc already in that hotel and just being this real magnanimous force to all of the people that work there, real kind of salt of the earth person. And you get that a few times in the Thompson book as far as him coming from 
rougher stock and the way that he can relate to the everyday person. You know, at one point, Doc and Carol hide out with this family of what seems to be almost like Okies, these migrant workers who are, are going up and down the California coast. And the way that, uh, Thompson describes Doc being able to communicate with the, the patriarch of this migrant family worker by almost not communicating the way that the silences were as important as their conversation was really nice. And yeah, I, I really liked what Thompson did with the book. And we'll definitely talk about the last third of the book, which has never been filmed, but also I, I wanted to talk about Rudy real quick, as far as Rudy in this and, and in the, uh, the remake, there's this whole thing about bulletproof vests and that, you know, are you going to use this bulletproof vest on this job? No, I would never touch it, yada, yada, yada. And then he ends up wearing a bulletproof vest. And that's how when Rudy tries to do a double cross on Doc after this initial bank job, that he is wearing a bulletproof vest. And so when Doc shoots him, no, he's actually okay. But in the book, it's great because Rudy has lived such a hard and horrible life that he had had almost every bone in his body broken. He he was so twisted up and knotted up inside that when Doc shoots him without a vest on, when Doc shoots him, that the way that his bones were formed basically protected him because he had had that horrible, horrible life. And it was a really nice touch. You can't do that in the movies necessarily because then you would have to tell the entire Rudy Butler story. It's, it's, it's a lot quicker to just, you know, say, I'm not going to wear a bulletproof vest, but surprise I was. But yeah, he is, he's such an animalistic character. And we get that sometimes through Alateri, uh, his portrayal, but and, I mean, to the point where he's going to a vet to get fixed up, he's such an animal. But in this, you know, it, it, it doesn't capture just how vicious he was in the book. Well, and also among the things that don't exist in the film is Thompson's description of, of what Rudy looks like, because he was a fourth at birth at a time when his mother clearly gave birth at home and the doctor probably wasn't the best doctor in the world. And you know, when he realized that he had to use forceps to get this baby out of her or else they were both going to die, he wound up deforming the child's head so badly that Rudy's nickname is Pie Face, with the bottom half of the pie being the bottom half of his face. I mean, that's a grotesque image, and I can absolutely see why neither Donaldson nor Peckinpah thought that it was productive to make that character look the way he looks in the novel because it would have been the only thing you looked at whenever he was on screen. But in the book, it goes a long way, I think, to telling you why Rudy is so profoundly violent and angry at the whole world. He's he's got a lot of reasons to be mad at the world, including the fact that he's hideous to look at. I mean, nobody is ever going to look at him with any kindness as far as he's concerned. And as far as most of his life has shown him, he he is quite literally a monster in human form. He's more a monster psychologically, especially with what he does to the, the vet in terms of the cuck holding and in terms of the domination over the two of them in the driving sequences and in the, in the vet and in the, in the hotel. It's very, uh, uh, so, I find that creepy as well. I find that really creepy. 
well, and it's sadistic as well. But yeah, the that's fact is in, in, the, in the book, he literally looks like the monster he is. Whereas in both versions of the film, you see his monstrosity through his actions. But, you know, he's not like the poor Frankenstein monster who actually isn't a cruel soul, but who has the face of a monster, so everybody treats him like one. And it suggests that, you know, maybe Rudy didn't have to be the person he became, but that he was cursed from the moment he came out of the womb looking like nothing human. Yeah, I kept trying to find images of forceps births and because I kept calling him pie head or pie face. And I was just like, that's that had to have been a thing. So I was looking for that, but pie face definitely gives you a whole different uh, image search on Google these days than uh, what it probably was in the 1940s and fifties. <laughs> and we thank God for that. <laughs> Google 1950s was a whole different thing. I have to tell you, we're dancing around the scene of doc and Carol coming to Banyan after the robbery. Doc has been betrayed by Rudy. He shoots Rudy, though Rudy was going to shoot him. He thinks Rudy is dead, but Rudy comes back from the dead. There's a lot of resurrection theme in this film. He comes back from the, and there's actually more of it in the novel. He comes back from the dead and he is out there unbeknownst to Doc. Doc and Carol go to Banyan's place and he leaves Carol in the car, goes into Banyan, and then Carol comes in, kind of sneaks in, and it becomes this whole thing of, is Carol going to shoot Doc, or is Carol going to shoot Banyan? And she's really supposed to shoot Doc. The idea was that Banyan has been sleeping with Carol and agreed, like, when this happens, you're going to murder your husband, basically, and we'll live happily ever after. So... The way that McQueen even reacts when Carol ends up shooting Banyan is interesting because it's like he expected that he was going to get shot. I don't necessarily pick that up in the second movie, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. It's this nice moment of tension. What's going to happen in here? Then they're off to the races. And then we really, for so much of this movie, we cross cut between the three groups, the three groups being Rudy, and he ends up picking up this woman, Fran, and her husband. We have Doc and Carol, and then we have the bad guys, which is the accountant and his boys. And then a little bit, we'll get police and some of this other stuff. But it's interesting because there are scenes with the police in this movie, but the police aren't the threat. You know, they're this looming threat that's in the background, but they're the least of all of the threats to Doc and Carol. Really, it's Rudy and it's... Banyan's guys that are the the bigger threat, and it, it, I always found that to be very interesting. That you know, in most movies cops are robbers. In this movie, the cops are almost non-existent. Yeah, there's not that threat of the police. Um, it seems to be more also of a psychological threat. They have to get to Mexico. They have to get there. Um, uh, that tension. If they don't get there, the police will get them, or the good old boys will get them, and and also too the the road is also an enemy. An enemy of them as well, because they have to get to this place, get to the spot. One of the things that Thompson plays really effectively is the idea that, you know, Doc is is comfortable in his position as somebody who's living outside the law. He's fine with that. He's done that his entire life, and he's done it with a fair amount of finesse. He's figured out how to get around the police because he knows what the police are going to do. He understands 
from having had many run-ins with them over the course of his life, that the police do this thing, this thing, and this other thing. And in the novel, it's very clear to you that he's more afraid of what the people who aren't the police are going to do because they're the ones who are less governed by a set of rules. Now, Doc understands them, too, because as Thompson says explicitly, Doc came from those kind of people, those kind of people who grew up barely making a living, scrabbling and scratching and clawing their way as best they could. But Doc also knows from growing up among those people that those people are really unpredictable. And sometimes they'll protect you because you're closer to being one of them than you are to being the police. And they all hate the police. They hate authority in absolutely every variation. But Doc still knows you can't entirely trust them. You have to trust them as far as you're comfortable with. And then you have to assume that they'll probably betray you because it might work out better for them. And that's something I think that you don't see quite as clearly in either version of this film, although I think the Peckinpah version is by far the tougher version and certainly the less aesthetically seductive version. I think Peckinpah very much wanted this movie to look hard and harsh. The countryside that Doc and Will are traveling through is not pretty. It's not deceptively lush. It's not a kind of a beautiful countryside. It's harsh. It's hard scrabble. And you can see that the people who have to make a living living off that land are having a hard time of it and therefore are hard and practical people who are always weighing up the advantages and disadvantages of who you cast your lot with. When it comes to the obstacles that Doc has to get around, he ends up dispatching a couple police officers in a town within a matter of moments. But the one of the major set pieces of the film is this whole idea of Carol being at this train station and Richard Bright doing a, a switcheroo with these keys for a locker. And that becomes this fairly significant set piece of Doc having to go after this thief, taking this guy out on the train. He ends up being uh, ID'd by one of the conductors and two of these uh, little black kids that are on the train. So that is like, it really takes a long time for that all to go. I've always been curious if that was a inspiration, that particular scene was an inspiration for the film Commando, because after he uh, karate chops uh, Richard Bright the throat and puts his hat down over him and puts his coat over him, I expected him to say to the conductor, Don't disturb my friend, he's dead tired. But unfortunately, he ends up letting that guy live. And that's the thing, too, is that Doc isn't as cold-blooded as maybe he should be because he had a chance to shoot Rudy in the head but ends up not shooting him in the head and then again later on in the film he has a an opportunity to shoot Rudy and doesn't shoot Rudy so he's like it's like he's living almost by this like cowboy code though it ends up kind of being his undoing sometimes because he should be more vicious than he is. And the one person that he's the most vicious to ends up being the person he shouldn't be vicious to, which is Carol. You know, he, he does more violence against Carol, uh, even though it's more of an open handed slap. I mean, that, that slap in this movie really does not settle well in 2018. Even in 1972, I wonder how that would have gone over. But yeah, that is, it, it's not pleasant watching those two go at it, though it fits with this narrative. It fits with that 
that distrust that we've been talking about, which was really at the core of this movie. The fact was that sequence with the guy on the train, it feels like McQueen might have said, uh, can we soften it down a bit, um, McIter in a way, because if you remember this, the lovemaking scene, McQueen wasn't sure, um, and Peckpaw, they're having a fight, whether that Peckpaw wanted um, uh, the doc, a doc to um, like fall in love and like, grab his woman and have her, but uh, McQueen said, no, when you've been in prison, it's all about coaxing. So I feel it might have been a way to kind of like, soften the character, but still have the hardness when he had to have it, the hardness, obviously, in the for the rest of the film. Again, I think that all of what we've been talking about apropos this scene goes back to, again, the thing I can't believe I'm saying, which is th- how much Peckinpah actually softened the original novel. Because in the original novel, it is true that Doc does love Carol and that Carol truly loves Doc. I mean, theirs is a true love, but Thompson's Doc is infinitely more ruthless than Peckinpah's Doc and infinitely more willing to sacrifice anyone and anything who or that gets in his way. He's a fascinating protagonist because absolutely nothing about him in the novel says protagonist. He he should be the antagonist because he is so incredibly out for himself in every respect. And that aspect of his character, I think, is what leads to the conclusion of Thompson's novel, which is not the conclusion of this film, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. I want to talk about that parallel between the two couples that we have through so much of this. You know, I, I talked about how Rudy ends up going to this veterinarian to get patched up after Doc shoots him. And the veterinarian, his character's name is Howard Clinton. He's played by Jack Dodson. Not maybe a familiar name to a lot of people, but if you watch a lot of television, you will know him primarily, I believe, as Howard from The Andy Griffith Show, this meek, mild-mannered dentist. And in this, he's playing this meek, mild-mannered veterinarian who's married to Fran, uh, the character played by Sally Struthers, who is this kind of, like I said, she's like a sex bomb who's hiding out here. And it just, it's one of these weird relationships where you're like, why is she married to him? And then when Rudy shows up, it's like, you know, the postman always rings twice kind of thing. It's like, okay, we're going to unlock this savage woman, you know, in, in the book, again, we talk a little bit more like Rudy sees her and just immediately knows what type of woman this is and knows that she probably married Howard or Harold for security reasons or whatever. And just, he can tell what type of person she is and he's ready to just unleash her. And so we have this whole relationship that goes on where Rudy is. I mean, it's right out of, uh, you know, something you're going to see on Pornhub. The husband is tied up and Rudy is having sex with his wife right in front of the guy. And, so we've got that going on, cuckolding Harold, who is a doctor, and now I'm going to totally stretch here and say now we have another relationship with Doc, who has been cuckolded by this other guy, Banyan, who's not present 
as far as physically, we never see him. You know, Doc is not literally tied up, even though he was in prison. He's not literally tied up and watching Banyan having sex with Carol, but it's very figurative as far as the parallels between these two relationships, as far as Doc having been cuckolded and, and having to deal with that, and then seeing Harold being cuckolded, and then the way that he deals with it. He deals with it in a very different way. And it's really fascinating to me is once Harold ends up killing himself and he kills himself in a little bit different way in the book than he does in the the movie, but it's such a nice graphic way that he does it um, just to see uh, Jack Dodson hanging in the bathroom and the way that Rudy just doesn't give a shit. But once he's out of the picture, it's like he doesn't care about Fran at all. It, it Now he's like saddled with her and he much preferred just having her as this plaything and more the idea of humiliating her husband, I think he had more fun humiliating the husband than he did having sex with her. Well, I think you're completely right there. I mean, that's very mm. much the dynamic, particularly because in the getaway, the husband is tied to a chair watching them. Uh, in the remake of the getaway, uh, the husband at least is, is locked in the bathroom, so he's not actually there watching his wife having sex with another man with whom she's clearly having way better sex than she ever had with him. I, I think that that particular kind of sadistic impulse is one that Peckinpah serves much better than Roger, Don, Roger Donaldson does. And yet in the novel, it's so matter of fact that it's even more horrifying if that's possible. Yeah, the three of them are in the same bed together, and Harold just kind of rolls over and tries not to pay attention. Ooh. And do you notice that both in the, the original and in the remake, the stuff with the kitten, that was unusual. And in the, in the remake, the one of the kind of weirder things about it was when the, the Rudy character finds the man hung, he puts the kitten on top of the, of the dead body, and the cat goes down the body like it was the going down curtains. It was just a, a weird touch. That was a nice, nice touch, yeah. Of course, I'm the person who watched both these movies thinking, oh, don't hurt the kitten, don't hurt the kitten, please don't hurt the kitten. I completely understand. And yeah, it's it's weird that uh, Rudy is such an animal and he ends up not hurting the kitten. Thank goodness. Yep. The train ends up taking a long part of this movie. It ends up being uh, what what tips off the cops and then sets that stuff into motion. One of the things I found interesting about this movie, too, is that and I think it's it's partially in the book as well, is that so much of this movie is like Doc fighting against technology. Technology seems to be his undoing. I mean, the idea of him not having a working radio in the car, him having to stop and get a radio, buy this radio, and then it's the television flashing his mugshot on TV that seems to really be part of this. And then you could even talk about things like the way that he takes out the elevator later on, the way that he hides out in a garbage truck. There's this whole idea of these different mechanical devices and the way that they either hinder or, or, or help him throughout the rest of this movie. Um, I don't know if that was a hundred percent intentional or not. He doesn't seem to be a man out of time. You know, he was away for four years. So it's not like one of these movies where the guy's been away for 20 years, 10 years or more. And then when he comes out, he's, 
he's completely out of touch with the world. It doesn't seem like that's necessarily the case. There's a, there's a line like that in, I think it's the 94, the script in the 94 one where, where, where it's like there's a reference to something and he doesn't catch the reference. But in this one, it doesn't feel like he's, he's been out of commission that long. Part of what you're seeing there is that in a very real way, I think Thompson conceived Carol and Doc as being a variant on Bonnie and Clyde. And of course, when you talk about Bonnie and Clyde, you're talking about a couple who were committing their depredations before what we think of as modern communication technology really existed. I mean, of course, the beginnings of it existed. But the fact is that by the time you you get to the 70s, it existed in a far more real and pervasive way. And yet Doc and Carol really are still depicted as these kind of 30s outlaw doomed lovers. And that's not untrue to Thompson's novel, which was written basically between Bonnie and Clyde and this incarnation, the 70s incarnation. But they are very much out of time, even in the early 70s. They really are like romantic, badlands, couple on the run, haunted by their deprived backgrounds, by their their lack of hope that really things will ever be better for them if they play things by the rules, if they become good members of society. And yet, if they do what they're destined to do, do be nipping at their heels and eventually those dogs will catch up to them and, and pull them down. So there is kind of a mythopoetic thing there. And that's very, very Peckinpah. I mean, people always talk about Peckinpah as being a brutally realistic director, somebody who depicts, depicts the violence and the harshness of life with no romanticized ideas. But the close, the more closely you look at his films, the less, that proves to be true. He was very much a romantic and one who looked back to an earlier time in which heroes were heroes until they crossed some little line and then they became villains and were hunted down. There's much more romantic sensibility to Peck and Pa's film than I think there is to Thompson's novel, which is brutally anti-romantic. I don't think in terms of the dark character that it's his first time in prison. I think he's been a career criminal for most of his life. Maybe started young, maybe in, juven- in juvenile prison, and then up. I don't think it's been his first rodeo, rodeo as they say. So, and uh, interesting to find out how him and Carl had met. They don't seem kind of people that would meet in normal situations or somewhere diff- somewhere out of the ordinary. They just they're very opposites. Yeah, they do talk about that in the Thompson story, and, and please, uh, Maitland, feel free to, to chime in here. If memory serves, it was was more of a Bonnie and Clyde kind of thing, where it was, um, oh, you're this um, person in a living in a normal vanilla life, and here's this kind of romantic figure coming in, and you know, kind of takes her away from that. I remember, seem to remember there was some tension with her family, those kind of things. Oh, very much so. I mean, Carol was a librarian. She was a young woman who uh, apparently didn't have a lot of prospects. I'm not really sure why, but uh, by the time she meets Doc, yeah, she's the town librarian and is clearly on the fast track to being the local spinster who's going to be in the bad version of the future and It's a Wonderful Life, where she never meets anybody to love her and she winds up lonely, alone, and unloved. But 
Doc blows into her life and absolutely changes everything. Uh, he's romantic. He loves her. He woos her and shows her this vision of a much more exciting life that she could have beyond being the town librarian. And she's quite young in the novel. I think she's 22, 23, and Doc is 36. So, you know, she's already at a very young age been condemned to a future as a, a lonely spinster. And Doc saves her from that in a spectacular way, not necessarily a way that has a, a solid future to it. But I think for her, that idea of a solid future is already a dismal dream that isn't hers. So he looks like the way out. So you already talked a little bit about the whole idea of the criminal underworld being more important and more volatile than the police. And it's very important to note that as we move into the climax of the film, we are not dealing with the cops coming into this, you know, final showdown. Like I mentioned the, the idea of, uh, there's a, a set piece that happens after they, um, are seen on television and, uh, he goes in and buys this, uh, shotgun that ends up shotgunning this police car, yada, yada. But that's kind of the last real police influence that we have on this film. Instead, it all culminates at this hotel, which ends up being a safe house uh, for criminals. And that's where we uh, get the, oh, God, the the wonderful Dub Taylor as the guy who runs uh, this hotel. So we have the meeting of the accountants group, the uh, Rudy and Fran coming in and then Doc and Carol coming in and all three groups having it out in this really kind of spectacular shootout that ends the film. It goes together really well. It's, it's one of those pieces where you're just like, okay, this is, this is pure peck and paw here, you know, fighting against this group. And then we end up going over here and then we come back to Rudy and Fran and, and just all of these things. And I even mentioned the, the idea before of him being unable to fit Finish Rudy off almost in cold blood. It isn't until later on when when Rudy's up at a, and about again and shooting at Doc that Doc finally ends up being able to finish Rudy off. But then we move into the end of the film where we get another one of um, Sam Peckinpah's fantastic group of players, which is Slim Pickens. So now we have Slim Pickens show up and he becomes their savior. And I like again that. He is a quote unquote criminal. He, he can, uh, uh, relate to Doc and Carol because he got in trouble with the law once for dynamiting some fish and he wasn't even able to keep the fish and he was fined a hundred dollars. So he can completely relate to where Doc and Carol are coming from. And he ends up being their savior down into Mexico. But we get some great dialogue in here and Slim Pickens is always fantastic to see, but that's where the movie ends and there's like a whole other one third, I would say, of this story that we don't see, which is in the Thompson book, which, you know, all uh, Jim Thompson's works are always so fascinating to read and to see where he goes, to see the way that he plays with the form. Sometimes we did uh, After Dark, My Sweet uh, a couple of years ago and talked a little bit with Robert Polito about um, Thompson's life and about some of the, the literary forms that he chooses to do. And the last third of the book becomes this, I mean, we, we eliminate the Slim Pickens character. We pick up at the hotel we escape from the hotel and then we go into this other safe house type area where Doc and Carol have to end up 
going under the this lake into these underground caves and hide out in the caves for two days. Carol has this freak out because she doesn't take these sleeping pills that she should take because it's so scary in these caves. She takes these sleeping pills, is asleep for 48 hours. They pull her and dock out. Then this criminal family have them stay in this hollowed out huge pile of manure where they have to be in there with all the grubs and the flies and all this kind of stuff. And then they take a boat down to uh, South America, I think it is, where they stay at the kingdom of this guy named as El Rey. And it's like this whole thing of like coffin to decay to now you're in the afterworld and El Rey's kingdom. I mean, that's like the last couple chapters of the book. It's just amazing. The, all of these descriptions of this place that he has, the way that he, he rips the riches away from these fugitives that come in and then their fate. Once they don't have any more money, Oh, it is one of the most grisly things that I have read in a long time. Well, so let's just talk about El Rey, right? I mean, this is what this all comes down to. And uh, I will give a tiny shout out here to, uh, I believe it's from Dusk Till Dawn, uh, in which at the very end of the escape from the vampire Mexican bar in the middle of nowhere, George Clooney's character does get away and somebody asks him where he's going and he says he's going to El Rey's. El Rey's is hell. And there's just no two ways about it. El Rey's is Jim Thompson's vision of hell on earth and scented by juniper bushes and a sweet, sickly pork roasting smell. And it is, it is simply extraordinary. I mean, this is the point at which Jim Thompson stops being a hard boiled crime writer and crosses over into a, a really spiritual dimension, I suppose, although it's all still happening on this earth in the flesh. It is absolutely incredible. And it's, for me, the thing that somebody who introduced uh, a couple of Jim Thompson novel reprints in the 90s, I guess, called Jim Thompson's Trap Door, where you get through this this story, which is a heist story or maybe a little bit of a mystery story or a little bit of a thriller story, and you come to the end of that story, and then you fall through Jim Thompson's trap door, which opens into hell on earth. Yeah, it sounds interesting. Just imagine if they had have, uh, done a literal adaptation uh, of the getaway of that ending. It sounds amazing. It sounds like um, there was a game in the 90s called Silent Hill, I had five different endings, and if you played for the game each time, they gave you a different ending. One of the endings was you be, you became you get sucked up and met aliens. I'm just imagining that's a kind of very Jim Thompson type ending. They're in El Rey's kingdom, Doc and Carol, along with all of these other people who have allegedly you know scored big. And the way that El Rey has this whole thing set up, you pay all of these taxes on your wealth, and it's basically this no-win situation of you always end up paying El Rey. And then once you're done with your money, you go into this other village. And Doc is wandering around one day, and he finds this other village that's uh, away from uh, the, the kingdom, as it were. And he 
ends up running across this guy who he was supposed to give money to the the woman that he was staying with that put him in these underground caves and in this shit pile literally she gives him some money and he sees this guy he's like oh yeah i'm gonna give this guy his money back this guy's this six foot four uh, former, very, very heavy, large man. And now he is nothing but skin and bones because once you're done, once El Rey has sucked all the money out of you, he throws you in this village. And then basically the people that are there are expected to eat one another. That's where that sickly sweet pork smell comes from that you're talking about, Maitland, is just that whole idea of these people have nothing left. They now end up feasting on each other. And now Doc knows that that is the fate that is waiting for him. He goes back down into the kingdom, and they have this event that occurs once a year where it's this big gala you know, ball or whatever, and he ends up speaking to this doctor and he's like, Hey doc, um, you know, one doctor to another, I suppose. I want you to set this thing up basically where he would tell Carol that she's sick and needs to have an operation and that he will kill her on the operating table. And the doctor is like, you know, how dare you do this to me? I was actually a friend of Rudy's. So this comes back. There's no way I would ever do it. Plus, I was a friend of Rudy's, and how dare you tell me this? Oh, and by the way, Carol just came to me and asked me to do the exact same thing, and she's right over there hiding out of sight in this room. And so now the two of them, at the end of the book, know that they have made this request to have the other one killed. And that's how we end our love story, is in this horrible place with these two characters that basically want to kill one another. Talk about, I mean, just breathtaking. When you put that book down, you feel winded. It has taken you on such a ride. Oh, it's apocalyptic. It's as though somebody kicked you in the gut right before you put that book down on the bed to think about it. And that's Jim Thompson's trap door. (laughs) You know, you're going through this, relatively conventional though extremely well executed thriller narrative and then the floor just drops out from underneath you and you're in this entirely different kind of narrative which is you know Mephistophelian it's as though you walked into a circle of Dante's hell it's absolutely extraordinary and it's something that I don't think that any other novelist, certainly of Thompson's era, and I can't think of one uh, of of ours. I mean, maybe a novel like Angel Heart uh, walks into the same kind of territory, although the movie version of it really doesn't get, actually the, the novel is Falling Angel, and Angel Heart doesn't quite get, I think, as grim as the novel does, although there is that uh, freight elevator to hell in it. That was an incredibly prescient and genre boundary breaking vision that Thompson had that took the took what was a really good crime novel that nevertheless was adhering to the literary conventions of the crime novel and just took it into quite literally another dimension. There's a connection between From Dust Till Dawn and The Getaway. I mean... The whole stuff of Tarantino and Clooney with the Winnebago, that could be a really good thriller like The Getaway. And then if they sit into hell with the vampires, 
is it's like a second film. It's like it could be two different ways. You know, like these books that you get where you turn this pace to go do this certain thing, whatever. It could be like that. It should it should have been two endings to the film. If I'm just still gone, but um, just imagine if it had been a version of the getaway with that ending and that ending that we have now it would have been interesting because a lot of films nowadays they have different endings for films. Was so it that um what do you call it? Unfriended. They had like, different endings on the film and different features. But uh, that's a weird connection from Dust Till Dawn to the Getaway. Yeah, and then they ended up, uh, Rodriguez's TV station ended up being called El Rey. And I never made the connection between those two until I was reading the book. And I was like, oh yeah, El Rey Network. Okay, I get it now. So let's go ahead and take a break and play a few words from our sponsors. We'll be back right after these messages. Here are just a few of the things famous people say about the After Movie Diner podcast. Hello, I'm Dame Judy Dench, and when I'm not dusting the submarine, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast. You know, for the film reviews. Hello, I'm Eric Stoltz, and when I'm not taking Uncle to the pictures, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the interviews. Hello, I'm Lewis Gossett Jr., and when I'm not trampolining for peace, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the music. Hello, Bernie Torpin here, and when I'm not undermining Venezuela. I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the guests. Hello, I'm Celia Emery Stunt Double, and when I'm not wanking for tumours, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the comedy. Hi there, I'm Ali Sheedy, and when I'm not taking photographs of bricks, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast, mostly for the pancakes. Yes, that's right. The award-winning After Movie Diner podcast is all things to all people. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podbean, Facebook, Twitter, and at www.aftermoviediner.com. Have a hunger for horror? A yen for Yelp yarns? Then give your blood-curdled bones a boon and tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. Join sordid slime slingers Casualty Chris and Father Malone as they take on HBO's groundbreaking television series, Tales from the Crypt. Here's what the rotting and rancid rabble are saying about Chronicles from the Crypt. (laughs) Tune in to Chronicles from the Crypt. You have nothing to lose except your life. Do you like great music? Do you like in-depth podcasts? Do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope? If you answered yes, no, or fish to any of these questions, Love That Album is the show for you. Every month, Morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail. They'll cover the performer, the history behind the recording, the musicianship, common thematic elements between the songs, and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. So if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to Love That Album Podcast at Apple Podcasts or download directly from lovethatalbum.com. 
blogspot.com. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. of a way to make a living, Doc. Well, you should have married a dentist. I think I've got a way out of this place. There's this guy that works out of Phoenix. His name's Jack Benyon. And he's planning something very big. You contact him. Tell him I'm for sale. Just get me the hell out of here. Can you do that for me? Mr. Binion, I came here to talk about my husband. Let's just look at the situation. One, the wife is very attractive. She is a stunningly healthy young woman. trusted you yeah and i came through for you too yeah repeatedly two woman's husband a thief serving a long sentence in a mexican hellhole you're supposed to make a deal with him the deal wasn't good enough and you should have walked away three a businessman lots of power and influence a fellow who can easily get the husband a pardon why should he one simple reason money you'd do the same for me wouldn't you doc you'd humiliate yourself for me wouldn't you We just want money. All right, we are back and we were talking about the getaway. So it was interesting. I was reading about the 72 version versus the 94 version. Now we talked on this program a long time ago. I mean, we've talked about Walter Hill a lot on this show over the years. You know, we've done episodes on Hickey and Boggs and the Warriors and Streets of Fire. So we've we've talked about him plenty of times. Now the getaway, I'm not sure which came out first, Hickey and Boggs or the Getaway, but it was right around the same time. And this was the first time, and I don't know if it was the last time, but it was definitely the first time that Walter Hill and Sam Peck and Paul worked together. And I've always, you know, I've always contended that Walter Hill took a lot of inspiration from Sam Peckinpah. There's a lot of times where I've referred to him as being the poor man Sam Peckinpah. And th- it's interesting that these two working together here, um, you know, it was a pretty good match of, of their talents, I would say, as far as this screenplay is pretty solid and what Peckinpah does with it is fantastic. And now, but then I read like, Walter Hill wasn't happy with some of the things that happened during the shooting and some things were changing, yada, yada. Though I read one of the drafts of the screenplay and it felt very, very similar. So when 94 rolled around or even before that, I've read versions of the, um, the getaway 94 script 
dated as early as 91, August of 1991. So when that came around, he was given this new chance to revisit the material. We ended up getting another version that was shot by Roger Donaldson. Now, the thing with the 72 version that I alluded to before was that McQueen and McGraw were on this. McGraw was going out with producer Robert Evans at the time, ended up, uh, she ended up falling in love with McQueen. They had this whole whirlwind romance, yada, yada. Now we're cutting to the early nineties when Kim Bastinger and Alec Baldwin fall in love on the set of the marrying man. And then they say, Oh, let's be this couple now in the getaway. So it's this kind of like, poetry, you know, rhyming thing of 94 to 72. I have to say, I actually like Alec Baldwin as an actor more than I like Steve McQueen. And that was one of the things I wanted to, to talk to you guys about as far as I always have trouble figuring out what's going on behind Steve McQueen's eyes. He always feels very, very distant to me. Like I don't seem to know who this person is. Am I the only one with that? Or how do you guys feel about Steve McQueen as an actor, as far as being relatable or somebody that you want to see on screen? Now, Aaron, I know you've been reading a a biography of him, so I want to ask you first. He's got presence over than uh, Baldwin. I think Baldwin's more of a kind of authoritative person, but McQueen, it seems to be there's a hamster in his head that's constantly working. And the book I've been reading too has complimented um, McQueen on the, his use of props. If you remember the scene in the getaway with the shotgun, um, it was his idea to have it wrapped up. Uh, so, no, in terms of McQueen, I've always liked him. I mean, he's a blonde-haired, good-looking, blue-eyed man, and uh, he's, he's kind of got that way where he can be dangerous, he can be sensitive, and and in a lot of things that actors these days, um, they don't have a, a past. McQueen, he did have a past. He had a rough childhood. A rough life uh, was in the navy, or was it the army or the navy, or one of them uh, during Korea. And a lot of actors these days don't have that kind of uh, emotional or man's man kind of thing about them. Um, it, they've not lived like that generation, like maybe like McQueen and his kind of compatriots of that time as well. They don't. But with Baldwin, I just think he's just an actor. He's, it doesn't really show. I mean, if McQueen had went down a different road. He could have been a career criminal, but Baldwin, I think he could have been a career criminal on Wall Street, maybe. I've always felt that McQueen was one of the last of the old school Hollywood actors, despite the fact that, as you said, you know, he had a real life and he had a life that wasn't an easy one, one that involved living real life in in, in a harsh way. And yet on screen, I always felt that Steve McQueen had that fundamental impenetrability that all of the classic movie stars had. They looked as though they didn't come from anywhere and that you could project almost anything you wanted on them. And in the case of McQueen, I think what you wanted to project on him was a very classic kind of American masculinity in actors. And he he supported that. When you saw him on screen, you saw a man who could handle his business, a man who knew knew what he was about, a man who, when confronted with difficulty, didn't fold, but who just got his stuff together and did what needed to be done. And that's a, a quality that served him extremely well. 
in films. And he wasn't somebody who ever succumbed to the temptation to try and show his softer side in film, because I don't think that that was something he was capable of doing. And I think unlike some actors, he absolutely knew that that wasn't something he was capable of doing, so he shouldn't do it. And it's what made him perfect for roles like for Doc. He could not have been a better Doc. Doc clearly has a past. He's got a huge past. We know a little bit of it in the movie. But we clearly don't know the half of what made Doc into the kind of man he is. And McQueen, I think, was the perfect actor to portray him in that version of the film. And then what do you guys think about Ellie McGraw? Because she is somebody that I am not that familiar with. No, I only know her from Love Story, and Love Story was like, I'd saw it in like film school, and it was like, yeah, is that it? I was more interested in writing the character than I was over her, and she's supposed to be the person that we're supposed to feel emotional towards, but I felt more emotional towards Ryan O'Neill than I did ever. <laughs> and McGraw, cause she's kind of a blank-faced actress. I don't get any kind of like attractiveness to her. I don't feel any presence in her. But what she does in the getaway, she's she's okay, she's fine, but it's not mind-blowing. It's not like you fall in love with her because she's like so great-looking and she's so resourceful. She's just there. Well, I essentially agree with you. I mean, Ally McGraw obviously was a, was a model before she was an actress, and that's very, very clear in her performances. I mean, her presence is very much a visual presence, and it was... I mean, she was the epitome of what 70s girls wanted to look like. If you looked like Ali McGraw, the world was at your feet. You were, you were skinny. You were incredibly wasp-looking. You had beautiful straight hair. You, have lovely, you had lovely clear eyes. That was very much a look of a time. And as an actress, the way in which it served her is that you could project almost anything you wanted onto her because nothing was going to contradict you. There really wasn't anything there to compete with what you thought she should be. And I think that that works in the getaway, but I think it's also what limited her in her her career as an actress, because there really wasn't all that much that she could do other than look like Ali McGraw. So when it comes to the remake, now I'm not the kind of guy that just shits on remakes just to shit on a remake. Sometimes I like the remake better than the original. You know, we, we talked about the Maltese Falcon on this episode a, a few months ago, and obviously I love the third remake of that movie more than I like the first two. So the getaway, th- there are a lot of things that are beat for beat exactly the same. Then there are some differences. The beginning of the movie is one of those significant differences as far as the robbery has changed from a bank to a horse track. Uh, we have, obviously we have different actors in this, though it's interesting. Richard Farnsworth, his character is called Slim to be a throwback to Slim Pickens in this. I didn't necessarily see enough differences to say, oh yeah, this makes a lot of sense why they remade it. And then it being coming out in 1994, I remember when this movie came out and I was already kind of tired at that point. Well, first off, I was getting kind of tired of Alec Baldwin. I was getting kind of tired of Kim Bassinger. I was really tired of Michael Madsen. At this point, Michael Madsen was making like six or seven movies a year. And I was a little tired of couples on the run movies. I mean, this coming out in 94, it was just a year after True Romance. 
and which, you know, true romance speaks a lot to Badlands as we're talking about. But I just, it felt like there were a lot of couples on the run movie and I was just not into the idea of seeing this. And it felt more like, like a stunt kind of a thing. Like, Hey, Baldwin and Bassinger are together now because the mirroring man. So now let's have them star as this couple, you know, throwing back to this 1970 movie, 1972 movie. So I, I didn't see it until the other night. And then when I was watching it, I was like, eh, I, it just it kind of left me cold. I, I, there wasn't anything in here where I was just like, Oh my God, that was so much better than what they did the, in the original movie. I just didn't see a whole lot of a point to it. The thing about it too, was it felt like a really good cover by a band. They were hitting right notes. And then all of a sudden they went like down and then back up to good, and then it was like back down to awful, and it was like, yeah, like you said, it left you cold, it left me cold, because um, it just didn't have the same kind of impact. It was just there. It just, oh, that's a, that's a set and tell of this story. It was just there. It was just a thing. Just, and I, I only just saw it this year. In terms of Baldwin, I was never a fan, although I did like him in uh, Hunt for, for October with fellow Scott uh, Sean Connery, but Sean Connery was over that film more. Another thing is I felt with it too, you know the James Woods character, the Banyan character, it felt like he'd walked off the specialist into the getaway. It was just kind of the same kind of character. And uh, we all know what James Woods likes. James Woods is like now these days. So it's kind of, do we bring up his name or what? Yeah, yeah, he's kind of tainted himself now. Well, I have to say that I, I was not a huge fan of the remake of The Getaway. I, it's one of those movies that I looked at and thought, well, this is not a terrible movie. And I suppose if you had never seen the original, this is an, an interesting story and it's certainly well acted. I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with it unless you realize that it has been done better in the past. The one thing that I will say for it is that I think that the character played by Sally Struthers in the first version is a slightly more interesting character in the remake in that she seems to have a little bit more agency and she seems to be a little bit more self-directed. She's played by Jennifer Tilly in the, in the new version of the movie. And I I just found her character a little bit more interesting and a little bit more somebody I, I wanted to focus on and see a little bit more of. And although I don't know really anything about the writing of this rewrite or the making of this particular film beyond what pretty much everybody knows about it. I do think it's interesting that this in this time around, the screenplay was credited to Walter Hill and to uh, Amy Holden Jones. And I have read that one of the things that interested her was rewriting and beefing up that character. I think that might be something that makes it worth watching, but honestly, if you ask me, well, I know there are these two versions of the getaway. Which one? I, which one should I watch? I, I would say that you should watch the Steve McQueen, Ali McGraw version. No two ways about it. Yeah, there were a couple of casting decisions that they made in the remake that I enjoyed a lot. Like Jennifer Tilly, I thought was a, a good choice for the Frank Carvey role. But um, I love Burton Gilliam. Uh, most people know him from uh, Paper Moon or from Blazing Saddles, where he is just terrific. He's got that great smile and him as golly, the guy showing uh, around the hotel and, and being that Dub Taylor role, I thought was great. And then I grew up watching The Paper Chase, so seeing James Stevens as the cuckolded uh, 
veterinarian was really nice to see him show up in something. But it was like, okay, whatever. I, I had such a problem with Michael Madsen's extensions. It was so tough watching him and just like, now I know the character is supposed to be distasteful, but just he looked like he had escaped from a bad country band, you know, and it was just like, oh, just clean yourself up, dude. Go take a shower. I did, however, really enjoy seeing James Woods as Banyan. I mean, that was kind of great. I also like David Morse and his small role. With his, with his greasy uh, ponytail and these kind of cheap clothes, he was okay. But uh, he's an actor you could see better stuff in him. I always like David Morse as an actor. He was uh, in what was the? He was in a TV show where he played a cabbie. It was called Hack, and it's a really good series because he's so late night on TV. It'd be like filler TV, but it was still good quality filler TV uh, Hack. And that's how I knew David Morse, and then I see him again. It's like, oh, there's him from uh, Hack. He'd also been in other movies too, hadn't he? With like Andrew Dave's films as well. His name has come up on this show so many times. Um, you know, he just, for a while there, he was the go-to guy to just be a real SOB in so many movies, things like The Long Kiss Goodnight. Um, but then he would play like the happy dad character in Contact or the really creepy guy who's going to kill the entire world in 12 monkeys and it's like for a while he was playing so many bad guys in so many movies that i couldn't even remember when he was sweet dr jack morrison on saint elsewhere it's to the point now where i'm like i need to go back and watch saint elsewhere and kind of get this david morse taste back in my mouth of him being a good guy just because he has played so many bad guys in movies and yeah he's terrific as what is his character's name like jim deere or something uh jim deere jackson and he's no the accountant but he brings his own spin to that role and i think he works really well in that well, okay, I also like the fact that they're not robbing a bank. They're robbing a dog track. I mean, how much tackier can you be? They're not even robbing a horse race track. It's a dog track. That is so white trash, low class. You really couldn't be sleazier than that. So I do kind of like that. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Want to make a statement? The boys tell me I did a couple of murders. Anything in it? I think you better let me have it. Bring in your book. been in my office that night when my brain cells playing hide-and-seek with those dizzy flashes down the street, I'd have never got messed up with a stolen jade necklace. I've never hired a detective before. What are the rates? As much as the traffic will bear. When can you start? I've already started. Well, this looked like something to rub your palms about. But my client's lovely stepdaughter had other ideas. What did she ask you to do? She wanted me to kiss her and find a jade necklace. Whatever she was willing to pay you, I'll up it. Just stay away from it. Forget the whole thing. It sounded screwy, but it's a funny thing. I always follow through on a sale, even if it pays dividends and a broken skull. I didn't see what hit me. I didn't have to. 
The first thing I knew, I found myself heaped on a bed like a bag of bones ready for the scrap heap. My throat was dry. My hands felt like a bunch of bananas. I couldn't stand on my pen. Okay, I said to myself, you're a tough guy. Let's see you get out of this straitjacket. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Murder, My Sweet, as we kick off a triple dose of Raymond Chandler adaptations with Terry Frost and Eric Cohen. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Maitland and Aaron. Maitland, what is the latest with you? Uh, the latest with me is that I am still republishing vintage gay books. I am preparing a book called Holiday Gay for the holiday season. And it's, uh, let's just say it's lots of good, naughty fun. And so that's about it for what I'm doing. Do you want to talk about Riverdale Avenue Press? Riverdale Avenue Press is a an independent company that specializes in a variety of erotic fiction, including MM fiction, um, fantasy erotic fiction, which includes erotic uh, eroticism with ghosts, vampires, werewolves, and all manner of supernatural creatures. And you can see them online at Riverdale Avenue Books, where a world of exciting erotica awaits. And how about yourself, Erin? What have you been up to? Currently, I'm looking for my kind of second start in media production and TV production, uh, but I'm also writing as well. I'm attending a convention a couple of weeks to do 80s-themed players and actors, people from um, um, AT, Ghostbusters, um, the A-Team, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but there's some really good actors attending. Um, I'm hoping to get some interviews from them that I can I'm gonna post online on the After Movie Diner. And I'm going to a convention in December to do with film and TV as well. The likes of Christopher, Christopher um, Sarandon's there. A lot of, kind of good character actors as well. Um also, I'm hoping to get another interview with Michael Bean at this event, because the last time I interviewed him, it was pretty horrific, because I mentioned a certain film he did with Nicolas Cage, and he clammed up. So that's my mission, is to get a really good interview from Michael Bean, because there's so many so many good stories to tell. I want to hear about Freakin, how he worked with Freakin on a certain film. Fingers crossed I get some good interviews, and I'll be sharing them online. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Fly